Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. On that note, I'd like to say thank you to my newest patron, Joanna Parker. Thank you for becoming a patron. And if you do become a patron or you donate, you'll be thanked on the air and throughout my social media. And don't forget, I have other podcasts from John to Justin, Pucks and Cups, Coast to Coast, and Canada's Great War. All of them are on all podcast platforms, and I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. So, every doll you give, I'll keep it all going. And also, I want to send a message out to Monty. Monty emailed me, and unfortunately, when I emailed you back, Monty, it said your mailbox was full. So, if you could try emailing me again after you clear out some messages, I'll be able to answer your questions. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. You can also find hundreds of articles on my website. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And you can also go to my YouTube channel where I put up weekly history videos. Just go to YouTube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. That's E-H-X. There was a time when millions of bison roamed through the area that would eventually be Tabor. Following those bison were the indigenous, specifically the Blackfoot, who hunted the animals that were a critical part of their culture and survival. Other indigenous groups that were found in the area included the Sarsi, the Athabascan people, as well as the Stony Nakoda or Rocky Mountain Sioux. Many archaeological discoveries have been made in the Tabor area, including extinct bison, indigenous artifacts, and one that made nationwide news in 1961, but I'll get to that later. In 1877, the land that Tabor occupies would become part of the territory covered by Treaty 7. For years, Tabor was known simply as Tank No. 77, as it was the spot used by the railway to fill its locomotives with water to cool them on their journeys through the country. There were homesteaders in the area, but no real community settlement. What would be Tabor began to appear in 1903, when Mormon settlers from the United States decided to establish a hamlet at the tank. Slowly, this little community would grow, and in 1907, a post office was established, and a name was needed. The Canadian Pacific Railway named the hamlet Tabor. As for why the name came about, there are two theories. The first is it was named for Mount Tabor in the Holy Land. Another origin of the name comes from the first part of the word tabernacle. This origin is likely, as the next station down the line was called Elkan, which is knackle spelled backwards. Those two together creates Tabernacle. In 1912, construction began on the Canadian Bank of Commerce building in Tabor, which was built in a similar style to eight other banks built by the company in Alberta around the same time. The first bank in Tabor was the Eastern Township Bank in 1906, and that would be amalgamated into the Canadian Bank of Commerce in 1912. While it is no longer used as a bank, that building still stands to this day and is one of the most beautiful brick buildings found in the community. 
1989, the building was designated a provincial heritage resource. In 1917, Tabor would donate land to the government of Alberta in order to construct a courthouse. J.B. Allen, the provincial architect, would drop the initial plans, but those be revised before construction began. In 1918, work began to build the courthouse, and Tabor was the first sub-jurisdiction in the province to get a courthouse. After the courthouse was built, it would operate as a sub-judicial district until 1936. After that, the courthouse was still used as a district court. In 1953, the town of Tabor acquired the courthouse for use as a town hall. It also served as the location for provincial departments, a community group meeting place, and even the school district offices. In 2013, the courthouse would be designated as Provincial Historic Resource thanks to its impact on the history of the area. The community of Tabor would slowly grow until the 1920s when coal mining began in the vicinity. The coal was mined and then shipped to Medicine Hat on the steamers that navigated the Old Man River and then by a narrow-gauge railway later on. In 1921, the Regal Collieries would auction off one of their mines in the area and it was purchased for about $75,000, which today would be $1.1 million. This showed just how strong the interest was in the area for mining, something that would help fuel the economy for Tabor during the first part of the decade. The mining history of Tabor would be important in its development, but it would not last long, and by the end of the decade, mining near Tabor had decreased heavily. In 1921, a very unique story out of Tabor ran in newspapers across Canada. I don't often put these in, but this one I found quite funny. It was on July 7, 1921, that a man with a wooden leg had spent too much time in the evening drinking, and he began attacking people with his wooden leg on the street. When the police arrived, he had put his leg back on and he was sent to spend the night in jail, but he wasn't done with his shenanigans. Determined to get out of his cell, he began to smash the furniture in it with his wooden leg as his cell companion stayed out of the way to prevent from getting hurt. The one-legged man then made wedges from the pieces of wood and drove them between the door and the wall in an attempt to make the door open, but he was unable to. He then smashed a hole in the wall and began shoving boards of wood through onto the man in the other cell who was sleeping at the time. Eventually, the man's wooden leg was smashed to pieces, and the police had to stand guard all night and had to use a metal bar to pry the door open the next day due to the wooden wedges the man had put in the door. The man would be charged with drunkenness, resisting an officer, and damaging property. The damage was put at $10 or $150 today, and 100 board feet of lumber was needed to repair all the damages. On July 10, 1928, Tabor would unveil its memorial to the soldiers who died from the community in the First World War. In the area, 1,500 men answered the call of joining the war effort and signed up, with 25 never returning home from the trenches. The memorial, which stands to this day, was sculpted in Italy and shipped out to Tabor once it was finished. At the base of the memorial stands captured German guns that were given to Tabor District for its work in raising funds for the war effort. The total cost of the memorial was $25,000 or $392,000 today. On hand for the unveiling was Senator W.A. Buchanan, as well as Simon Cook, the son of W.R. Cook, who died in the First World War and was listed on the memorial. After mining dropped off, there was a worry that the community would fade, but thankfully, the immense irrigation projects in the area would bring new life to Tabor and would help to initiate a whole new growth for the economy. The Tabor-Barnwell Irrigation District would provide 14 tons of beets per acre by the mid-1930s, but more on the sugar beet industry later. There was also a thriving farming industry thanks to that corn and sugar beets, many livestock operations and more. The honey industry was also large in the area, and the Tabor Creamery provided extra employment during the Great Depression when times were tough. 
1936, the community would make news with the slogan of self-help and its ability to be one of the most prosperous communities in Western Canada during a time when many were struggling to survive. During the Great Depression, the community redoubled its efforts to make the farmers of the district self-sustaining. This began with developing the sugar beet industry. The community would then have a cannery built to provide extra employment as well as a flour mill to process the grain grown in the district. The cannery was able to produce 130 carloads of canned products for the prairie market by the mid-1930s. Canning crops were grown on 1,100 acres in the area, with another 400 acres devoted to seed peas. Corn crops began to grow in the district during the Great Depression, which would have a major impact on Tabor all the way up to today. This was thanks to tests done on the soil that found Tabor would be perfect for corn growth. The process for growing corn in the area actually begins with Mr. Sandel, who started the crop on his property in 1934. By 1935, he was shipping 47.5 bushels of corn to the United States. By the following year, 29 Tabor farmers were growing corn to take advantage of this new market. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call one 866 285-2253. The sugar beet harvesting would play a role in the Second World War when Tabor was chosen as a location for a Japanese internment camp. The Japanese Canadians were forced to work on sugar beet land, harvesting the beets in what was essentially slave labor. This was after they had been removed from their homes in British Columbia and sent to the interior of the country. The use of Japanese Canadians was also supported by sugar beet producers as well. On March 3, 1944, the Lethbridge Herald reported, quote, Informed that many Japanese laborers were drawn away from the beet work to work other kinds of farm work or industry, despite the fact that they were brought to southern Alberta primarily to help the sugar beet industry, the meeting gave its support to the central board in pressing the government or any authority who is in charge of such labor to have all Japanese labor frozen to the beet industry for the period of the war, end quote. In all, roughly 3,000 Japanese Canadians were forced to move to work in camps in southern Alberta during the war. It would be decades before they would receive a formal apology from the Canadian government. I looked at Japanese internment on my podcast in 2020, and you can find the episode on my website, or in the transcript of this episode, also on my website. After the war, sugar beets continued to be the main industry of Tabor, and that would lead to the building of the Alberta Sugar Company plant in the community the only sugar factory in Alberta and the largest employer in Tabor at the time. By 1952, the structure was producing nearly 50 million pounds of sugar over the course of only three months of that year. 
The factory, which was built in 1950, still operates in Tabor to this day and is one of several food processing companies in the town, which includes Frito-Lay. As I mentioned before, another crop that would become popular around this time was corn. If you live in western Canada, you know all about Tabor corn, and many people wait for the day when trucks show up in parking lots selling corn because it is considered to be some of the best corn in Canada and even North America. It is said to be the sweetest and most tender corn available. Of course, Tabor corn is so famous that it has led to counterfeit Tabor corn being sold. As far away as Washington and throughout western Canada, people would advertise that you're selling Tabor corn, but in fact it is not corn from the community. This eventually led to a license number being used to ensure that the Tabor corn being sold was really from Tabor. Well, it is a scam that's popping up all over our city. Roadside sellers charging you for premium Tabor corn that actually isn't the real deal. Travis Danraj brings us this CBC investigation tonight into counterfeit corn. Fresh, sweet Tabor corn. When Judy Kendall saw the sign, she couldn't help but stop to pick up a few ears. But how does she know what she's getting is actually the real thing? I don't know for sure. It's pres I'm presuming. Every year across the province, more and more of these roadside stands are popping up. Many claim their corn was grown in Tabor. That's not always the case. Service Alberta says under the Fair Trading Act, counterfeit corn sellers could face fines up to $100,000 and even jail time. Many of these vendors are mobile, so uh, they, don't, they might be here one day, but they won't be here the next. Arnold and Marion Walker have set up shop at 109th Street for the past six years, selling the real thing. They're frustrated other stands are making big bucks selling wholesale corn you could find at the grocery store. It ruins the people that are selling the real stuff. It's not very good for the farmer that grows it. And it's certainly not good for the people that come and buy it. The walkers have a certificate from the grower to prove their Tabor corn is legitimate. They say any seller should be able to produce a certificate as well. That's news to Judy Kendall. Do you have a certificate and permission to sell Tabor corn? Yes, I have a permission. I don't have a certificate. It's a difficult maze for consumers to navigate, but one Kendall says she's willing to in order to get the best quality cob. The letter's not dated and she hasn't got a certificate. It's probably not Tabor corn, but I'll still take it. So for now, it will be up to consumers to find the cream of the crop for themselves. Travis Danrash, CBC News, Edmonton. Corn would become such an important part of Tabor's image that Corn Fest was created, which is an annual festival that includes the Midway and performers. Held each August, it is the largest free family festival in Western Canada, and there are many corn-based activities including corn tasting and corn stuffing. Corn stuffing involves two people, one wearing large overalls, and the other person stuffs as much corn as they can in the overalls. The team with the most corn in the coveralls within an allotted time wins. So, it should come as no surprise that Tabor builds itself as the corn capital of Canada. When you go to Tabor, you will also see a giant corn stalk, which is the world's largest corn stalk. Built in 1994, it stands at 36 feet tall, and it's a great place for a quick photo on Instagram. In 1961, Tabor would make news across Canada with what was called the Tabor Child, a discovery made by Dr. Archie Stalker in the glacial deposits along the east bank of the Old Man River. Stalker, a geologist, was surveying the area when he saw a handful of bones sticking out of the sandy bank. He assumed they were the bones of a small animal, and he would bag the skeleton and dispatch them to Ottawa. In Ottawa, Wayne Langston recognized that it was a skull and parts of a shoulder of a nine-month-old child, and the bones were aged between 20,000 to 40,000 years ago, 
far beyond anything found in the Western Hemisphere before. The discovery would touch off a controversy that would last for decades. Many questioned how a body could have turned up from so long ago, considering it was believed at the time humans only arrived in North America around 12,000 years ago. Dr. Richard Forbes with the University of Calgary would say, quote, I don't see where else it could have come from, but where it was found, end quote. Dr. C.S. Churcher, a paleontologist, would add, quote, The simplest solution is often the best, end quote. Both men believed that the body had floated down a river at some point, resting where it was found. The bones were too small and fragile to be carbon dated, which meant the location of the body within the geological strata had to be used to guess its age. Subsequent excavations at the site failed to recover any more bones. That being said, recent analysis using a measurement of bones, protein, and dating using new accelerator radar carbon techniques placed the bone fragments at roughly 4,000 years old, well within the established time frame of the indigenous arriving in the Canadian prairies. If you would like to learn more about Tabor, you can visit the Tabor Irrigation Impact Museum. This museum focuses on the impact irrigation had on Tabor's development and showcases irrigation systems and the process of early labor-intensive methods of growing crops in the area. The historic exhibit changes three times a year, and the museum features many artifacts related to agriculture, including old farming equipment such as tractors. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Tabor. On Saturday, we're going to be looking at the SS Edmund Fitzgerald and its very famous sinking. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.